Welcome to The Wrap Up, our podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap, and I'm going to welcome back my co-host for this week, ladies and gentlemen, The Wrap's assistant managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Hey, Adam. Hold for applause. Hold for applause. Okay. Thank, All you, the way thank, you, thank you. From thank Tulsa, you. Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, it's here. good to be back. It's been a, it's been a while. Uh, hopefully it's been a bit, it. but we've been very busy covering the news, right? Yes, there is a lot to discuss this week uh, on this week's episode. We're covering everything from surge pricing at movie theaters uh, to Bob Chapek stepping in it at Disney. Uh, later on, right. we'll have Drew Taylor on, uh, the rap reporter, uh, to talk about his epic 12,000 word piece about Disney's notorious box office bomb turncult favorite, John Carter, uh, which came out yeah. in 2012. Amazing. Um, and to top it off, Sharon, you've got your interview with uh, Power of the Dog director Jane Campion. Yes, Jane Campion, who was nominated for three, count them, Oscars, Best Director, Best Writer, and Best Picture. Um, So she is a triple threat at the Oscars, but also just a fascinating person because it's been 30, actually 28 years since she was nominated for the Oscars before. And we had, you know, a really fascinating and personal conversation. So that's definitely worth sticking around for. But first, let's get into the latest Hollywood headlines, starting with the news that is on everybody's mind, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. This is a, a terrible series of events that just continues to get worse. Um, you know, this week, we learned that uh, Fox News lost two members of their team, longtime cameraman uh, Pierre Zakchevsky and uh, 24-year-old consultant Alexandra Kushinova. They died after uh, the car they were traveling in just outside Kiev in Ukraine was struck by incoming fire. And uh, Benjamin Hall, one of Fox News reporters, was also seriously injured. But uh, he's thankfully now out of Ukraine and safe. Yeah, I mean, this has been really tough for uh, the journalism community because, you know, the war is only three weeks old and there's been so many casualties. There have been casualties, of course, also of Ukrainian journalists. Uh, this guy, Zakruski, uh, was based in London, had worked for Fox News for a long time. And um, Suzanne Scott, the company's CEO, released a note to the staff saying, talking about him, paying tribute to him, saying there was not a role he didn't jump in to help with in the field uh, under immense pressure and with tremendous skill. And there were lots and lots of tributes uh, online from his colleagues. But, you know, overall, it's just a devastatingly dangerous place for any journalist to be. I know there's a couple of uh, AP journalists right now who are in uh, Mariupol, the town that's basically cut off from all outside resources right now. And uh, you guys probably followed the, the shelling that's gone on there, including at a theater where lots of women and children were hiding. It's just uh, none of the rules of war seem to be holding right now. It's certainly not for journalists. It's awful um, and just wish it would stop. Yeah, well, that's that that doesn't seem very likely. But the, the right. interesting thing is that, you know, the journalists have um, rushed to the story in a situation where they really don't have a whole lot of protection. I mean, there's not much the Ukrainian army or government can do to to protect journalists. And what used to be the case, because I've been a journalist in the conflict zones many times earlier in my career, you know, you would write press in big tape on the on the on the back of your car or you'd put it on your vest if you were in a conflict zone. It doesn't 
uh, feel like that really would protect you today? Because if it doesn't protect uh, a theater when they write in Russian huge letters, children on the roof, then I don't think putting uh, press on your uh, flak jacket is going to help you much in Ukraine. So thinking about all of those really brave journalists who are bringing us a really important world story. Of course, exceptional reporting coming out of there um, at great risk to their lives. Um, So changing gears a little bit, uh, let's look at some business news. Bob Chapek and Disney. Right. This was a huge, huge story. Sharon, you yep. got pretty deep into it. What what exactly happened here? Yeah, I yeah, I mean, I followed it all last week and spent most of my weekend talking to people about it last week. I mean, you know, very simply, so Bob Chapek is the new CEO at Disney. He's been the solo CEO without Bob Iger to kind of back him up as chairman for about a year. And he had to do a lot of backtracking after he made the decision for Disney not to take a public stand on this bill in Florida, which is called the Don't Say Gay Bill, which basically has to do with what you can talk about in terms of gender, um, uh, gender in general, or sexual orientation in schools. And it, it, it has the effect and the intent of, uh, you know, marginalizing uh, the LGBTQ community. Obviously, Disney has a very large LGBTQ community being a creative company with lots of creative people in it, which has always had a big gay constituencies. And and Disney's also been known for being um, early, you know, loud and proud about their LGBTQ employees and providing benefits and things like that. So these folks internally were really upset that Chapek had not spoken out against this law, which was legislation, and then um, found out that Disney had given about $300,000 to campaigns to the politicians who were involved in this bill. But every time Chapin tried to explain himself, he just kind of made it worse. And he first tried to say nothing. Then he tried to say, well, look, to to his own staff, uh, look, we, we, we feel like our content speaks for itself. Look at Encanto, look at Black Panther, these very diverse projects of ours. That didn't cut it at all. And, you know, finally, uh, you know, a week ago, Friday, right, he had to apologize and say, I messed up. I didn't, um, I I didn't get it. And I have to say, it's not really gone away uh, since then. There was some kind of walkout this week by LGBTQ employees. There's another one planned for next week. And in general, I, you know, I having spoken to and, and seen the response on social media, the idea that your own employees are going public to speak out against you and say that you are betraying the values of our company, mm-hmm. what we stand for, is extremely damaging, damaging to Chapek himself, damaging to Disney as a brand. Um, it's just a black eye all around. And I don't know if it's going to go away right away. No, and what I found really remarkable is the willingness of these employees to speak up. We had this Pixar open letter where Pixar employees Mm -hmm. went public for the very first time saying that Disney executives Mm -hmm. have cut LGBTQ characters from their films in the past. And, you know, this has been a recurring gag that Disney has, you know, an openly gay moment in Beauty and the Beast, which is Josh Gad dancing with a man versus like an actual gay character. Come to find out, we learned that some of these filmmakers were trying to do that. And Disney corporate was saying, knock it off, cut it down. This is just a really open revolt. It is an open revolt and it is continuing. So we have a story that will be coming out, uh, hopefully by the time you are able to listen to this podcast, 
that has to do with whether um, Disney is going to move the Imagineering division, which of course is one very important creative engine for for all the new products in the parks, new theme rides, uh, new other kinds of new products, and a historical uh, part of Walt Disney's legacy that they were going to have to move to Florida. And now they're coming back to Bob Chapek and saying, we don't want to move to the state that clearly does not respect us, that does not value us, and why should we reward them by moving this entire business operation uh, to, to their state? And so that remains to be seen as to whether Bob Chapek will listen to that. A lot of the reporting that I did from both from like former Disney executives, because there's a lot of them out there, and from what we were hearing from inside the company, is this notion that Bob Chapek is very much a top-down leader and somebody who makes decisions with a small coterie of advisors around him, Robert Borchek, his chief of staff, Jeff Morell. Uh, who's the new spokesman, uh, head of corporate communications for the company. Um, Robert Borchick is a longtime uh, uh, Republican um, operative. Jeff Morrell had been at ABC News, but also worked in the Bush and Obama administrations in the Pentagon as a spokesman before going to British Petroleum. And so there's a question also, uh, Kareem Daniels also in this very small circle, who's the head of DMED, which is basically runs all the financing business decision-making at Disney. And the question is like, is he open to listening to the constituencies of what amounts to like, basically, as one of my sources called it kind of a nation state. Disney is so vast. They've got 80,000 employees. They're in countries all over the world. They create our popular culture across so many different platforms, whether it's television, whether it's movies, whether it's streaming, whether it's uh, theme parks, whether it's uh, um, cruise ships. You know, whether it's live entertainment uh, on Broadway, they they touch so much of our popular culture. And it's part of that. The job of the CEO is I'm not saying it's easy, but it is part of the job to sort of not only drive the business fundamentals, but also to hold it at the same time those cultural values. Yeah. Uh, and what are they in, in, in this very polarized world? It, it's um, it's like you got to pick a side. Yeah. 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 I guess they would say he's got a long way to go if he wants to live up to uh, Eisner and uh, Iger's shoes at this point. Certainly, certainly, I guess. And, and, you know, I cited in my piece that Bob Iger himself was very unhappy about all of this. And Bob Iger did tweet his personal support for the LGBTQ community and against this legislation. And, you know, I am told that he says that he considers this a human rights issue and not a business issue and not a politics issue, which seems to me quite quite spot on and as the way it needs to be, it needs to be regarded. So this is still an, uh, an open, uh, you know, issue and an ongoing situation. If there's going to be a walkout next week, if there's going to be this, this question on the table about moving uh, the Imagineers. So I would uh, suggest to, to our listeners, if you're interested in this, uh, you should check out uh, our reporting on this topic, particularly in our RAP Pro um, section which is for subscribers and where we are putting a lot of this exclusive reporting. Right. Well, and, and speaking of rap pro, that brings us right into our next topic. Um, we yep. had another big story this week, uh, which is surge pricing at movie theaters. Uh, AMC CEO, Adam Aaron's revealed that the AMC theater chain was actually charging extra opening weekend for tickets to the Batman, not only right. revealed this, but kind of gloated about it during an earnings right. call saying that right. tickets for the Batman would be more expensive 
than tickets for any other movie you were going to see that weekend. Um, and, you know, it it turned off a lot of people and and our reporting uh, from uh, the rap zone, Jeremy Fuster. We've got Hollywood execs that were quietly, you know, fuming over how he handled this move, especially yeah. in the wake of uh, back in December, Regal and Cinemark had quietly raised prices on Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, didn't make a big deal about it. Audiences were none the wiser. Uh, and here you have the CEO of AMC in the middle of inflation and people coming out of a pandemic saying, haha, we're charging you more to see the biggest movie that's out right now. Yeah, it's sort of odd. I mean, Adam Aaron is a big showman and he likes to make make a big play. He also did this crazy thing this week where he invested in gold and silver, like a lot of money in gold and silver. I, can, um, I am not a gold and silver specialist and I definitely don't understand why he did this. And I think that we've spoken to a number of Wall Street analysts and they, or, or I'd say um, movie theatrical uh, analysts of those public companies and they can't quite figure it out either. But I guess he wanted to park his money somewhere where he thought it was going to do better. <laughs> so he's an interesting guy, that Adam Aaron. Yeah. And, you know, I think surge pricing is here to stay with movie theaters, you know, having trouble. And with increasingly, it looks like these blockbusters are the movies people are going to go see. Right. Theaters are probably going to charge you a premium to go see that movie, just like IMAX tickets are a premium. Um, you know, boasting about it, maybe not the best thing to do at this point, but this goes all the way back to uh, I was reminded of in 2013, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas made some predictions about the future of the movie theater business. Uh -huh. And George Lucas predicted that movies would cost 50 under $150. Not there oh, yet, wow. but Lucas predicted that the big movies that would get in theaters would be the blockbusters and theaters would charge you a premium to come and see it there and everything else would be on television. Well, well I think, you know, I don't know if, if they also foresaw streaming right. and the content boom that comes from streaming yeah. because if if entertainment were a little more scarce probably we could go that way you could charge that kind of money for a huge for like for a really great experience an amazing seat and you pick your chair and they bring mm -hmm. you a drink and your sandwich and all of that uh and they massage your feet that's a really great idea wish they would do that <laughs> but um but as it is theaters are struggling and one of the things that uh, i spoke to one of the a source who was interested in this question of search pricing. And he was saying, look, you're boasting about this at a time when you go to the theaters, it's like a shit experience. You know, yeah. they're, they're not cleaning up the theaters. There's nobody around to kind of answer your question when you want to, because the theaters have cut back on all their costs. So they're not, uh, it's not like what we dreamed of having this premium go to the movies experience. Therefore we can charge more money and therefore it's worth it to get up off your couch and leave your Netflix account behind right now. Going to the theater is not that. So to be upcharging people and then boasting about it, he felt was like particularly tone deaf. Yeah. I was listening to Paul Thomas Anderson on the smart list podcast, oh. the Jason Bateman's podcast. And he was saying mm -hmm. essentially the same thing. Cause they were asking, don't you want your films to be in theaters? And he said, yes, right. but I can't begrudge someone in middle America who goes to the theater and the projector is underlit and the screen is ripping apart and the floor smell and people are on their phone and texting and talking. Like that's not how I want people to see. My movies. And yet so, that's yeah. how a lot of the movie theaters are. So. It's yeah, tough. we're pretty lucky in LA, but it's, it's still like, I don't know where what it is like you're in middle America. In LA, it's still really empty. 
really yeah. empty. What's it like? Have you gone to the movies at all, Adam? Yeah, it's, I mean, I went to the Batman opening weekend, but it, that was packed, obviously, because it was the Batman. Right. Um, it really depends on if there's a big new release out, but uh, it's coming back, but it's not as big as it as it once was. But, you know, I live in an area that, you know, was, quote unquote, open for business for quite a while during the pandemic. Um, right. But there were not new movies. So people, it's taking a little bit for people to realize they can go back to the theaters or that they even want to. Um, do do the, you go, how often do you go? Uh, I used to go every weekend, but now yeah. I've had a baby and spoiler alert, when you have a baby, you have much less time to do things. Um, right. but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's the theaters here in Tulsa, I will say are not bad. We have pretty good, um, exhibition. Um, mm -hmm. so I don't have a lot of complaints, but you know, I have friends in Atlanta who say, you know, it's a miserable experience going to an AMC there because it's just, no one is policing people who were talking and texting and, you know, right. May as right. well just go home and watch it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I am not uh, somebody who's very uh, bullish on the theatrical experience going forward, and I, I keep waiting for somebody to crack and cave and say this, that the uh, the critical mass for this distribution method just doesn't work. But I mean, look, I, I want it to be here because I love going to see the movies on a big screen too, and especially art house movies. I, I am not the opening weekend Batman target yep. audience. Anyway, it's a give and okay. take. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So next up, it is now time for Wax On, Wax Off. Uh, this is a portion of the show where Sharon gives her thoughts on her favorite person or moment of the week. And I will cede the floor to you. Thank you, Adam. So my Wax On this week is big hats off, big shout out, and lots of recognition and respect to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who in his addressed to Congress this week. And if you didn't listen to it, I really recommend that you go back and find it on YouTube and watch it. It's very moving. And he really reminds us what it means to hold true to our values as a Western democracy. And that we, he challenges us to live up to those principles that we profess and to, um, understand that the humanity that is being crushed and destroyed across, you know, across Europe, in Europe, in his country, is no different than the humanity that we seek to have here and living, living in peace and in prosperity. And he brought up 9-11 and he brought up Pearl Harbor and he drew uh, parallels to that. And I think that it was a historic moment. I have never, ever seen anything like that when you have a president who is literally under fire in his country in real time appealing for help because he said, you have done a lot, United States of America, you need to do more. And he uh, called for closing the skies over Ukraine. He called for um, airplanes, but he, he mainly called for the United States to behave as the leader of the free world and advocate for peace That's uh, and, and, and get more actively involved. But to see that in real time as missiles are being lobbed and uh, children being killed and buildings being destroyed in his country was something that was extraordinary and historic. My wax off is there was some guy on Wall Street who watched Zelensky's speech and liked it, but he criticized the fact that the Ukrainian president was wearing a T-shirt to talk to Congress. So Peter Schiff, a Wall Street stockbroker, tweeted, doesn't the president of Ukraine own a suit? 
he rightfully got hammered on social media, as many pointed out that the president of Ukraine was hiding from Russian missiles and trying to rally his country to repel an invasion from a nuclear power at that particular moment, and that perhaps what he was wearing wasn't exactly the point. But whatever, priorities, man, that's my wax off. All right. Next up, we're going on a deep dive into two of the bigger stories from the Rap and Rap Pro this week. Let's do it. Sharon, do you remember the 2012 film John Carter? I do, but even if I didn't, I may go back and watch it again <laughs> after I read the incredible piece by our own Drew Taylor, uh, which was titled The Untold Story of Disney's $307 million Bomb John Carter. Uh, I learned so many things I didn't know, and uh, let's talk to Drew about this. Yes, let's welcome Drew Taylor. The I'm here. Hello. The man Hi. of the hour. Hello. Tell us about Hello. John Carter, Drew. You didn't have to write what? this to get on the podcast. You could have just asked, can I come on the podcast? <laughs> I mean, I figured, you know, it was a good enough excuse as any. I obviously love talking about John Carter, so I'm very happy to be here. I mean... I remember John Carter, I'm sure Adam. I think Adam and I are closeted John Carter fans. So, yes. you know. I see. That, okay. that was... <laughs> but, okay. it, so I mean, here. it's a fascinating out, story. Man. Yeah, I mean... Okay, say, the... why are you... Okay, let's just start with that. Why are you a John Carter fan? Like, I never read this as a kid. I, I actually still have never read it. And it's actually hard to find huh. a pretty good, like, collection of the stories. Because they are over 100 years old at this point and in the public domain. So I need to... I need to read about which which is the the good one to to get and to read but it's John was, Carter of Mars right it's about yes man. yes it's a he's a confederate soldier who's beamed to Mars kind of telepathically obviously obviously, obviously as it as it as it happens but I was very fascinated because it was the first live action feature by Andrew Stanton who directed Wally and Finding Nemo and I'm a big uh, Pixar fan so right Right. That kind of transition was really fascinating to me. And, and Brad Bird had just directed Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol a few months earlier. So there was a lot of interest in, you know, these filmmakers transitioning to live action. So that's where that was my entry point. And then I, I sort of love kind of like underdog Disney movies. Uh, I've Adam has I've written for Adam stories about rescuers down under and the Emperor's New Groove kind of Disney movies that kind of fall under the radar. Um, so it was a real thrill to kind of just mm. dig into John Carter and talk to everybody who was involved. Well, you did. You talked to like everybody. Yes. Taylor Kitsch told me that he wasn't ready to go there yet, which I completely understand and respect that decision. But yeah, we talked to uh, Michael Chabon, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist who was the co-writer of the script. We talked to Andrew Stanton, Lynn Collins, who played the Princess of Mars herself, Dotar, uh, not Dotar, Sojat, uh, what is her name? God, I'm already, all my John Carter knowledge is leaving <laughs> me. Um, and we talked to Willem Dafoe, who plays one of the four-armed aliens in the movie, mm -hmm. um, as well as Dan Mandel, the cinematographer and the visual effects, one of the visual effects supervisors. So we got the it's whole thing. Absolutely amazing. Amazing you got all those people. <laughs> well, and, and this film was infamous because it it was this expensive, expensive project. There were reports that they were reshooting it. You know, the Pixar process is make and remake the movie over and over and over again. So there were reports that Andrew Stanton was trying to do that in live action. And it was costing Disney all this money. So there was all this pressure on the film already. And then it came out and it just bombed. So 
Drew, I'm curious what you learned through this experience. Was there anything you didn't know about John Carter that came out? Well, I wanted, you know, I wanted to know if this was being pitched to people as a live action Pixar movie, which is something that we had always heard from the time of production. And it sounded like it, it sounded like people thought that that's might would it be what it ended up being, but nobody actually was sold this as a, a live action Pixar movie. So that was, that was something that was interesting to me. And then the second thing was that you're right. There were all these reports of him shooting it. You know, somebody told me he shot it at least twice. Uh, but then it ended up being that he just built the um, additional photography into the budget and into the schedule. So everybody knew they were coming back. You know, sets were constructed here in Los Angeles. Um, and it ended up being kind of a the prototypical structure for the Marvel movies because they always come back later and shoot a bunch of extra stuff. Um, and then the other thing that I just sort of uncovered as I was going through the timeline of this movie was that Disney was in negotiations to buy Star Wars during the production of John Carter. Mm. So the, a lot of the, the article is about the failed marketing of the movie. And it feels to me like they didn't need to market it anymore because they had wanted it to be the next Star Wars. And by the time it was coming out, they already had Star Wars. I mean, nobody on the production knew this, of course, but you know, that was kind of a, like well, just connecting was, the dots. That was one of the interesting things about the piece is that you, you you said there wasn't really any one thing that didn't work. It was just, and that is sort of one of the interesting un uh, sort of ineffable parts of making a movie, you know, is that what makes a movie work and what doesn't. I mean, you could say, obviously it starts with the script. Script's got to be really strong. Director's got to have a really uh unique and clear vision that he or she can convey to the cast and having good actors matters and all that stuff. But it's like, for you, why didn't it come together? Like what, what was it missing? I don't know. I mean, people have pointed to the casting, although I think everybody's really mm. good in the cast. Although I wonder if having a more diverse cast and having, you know, a younger cast, maybe even than the people that they chose would have helped. Um, well, to I that point, Mar- you should mention that your your piece confirms that Tom Cruise was actively lobbying oh, yeah. to star in this movie. Yeah, and yes. Andrew Stanton was no, I want the Friday Night Lights guy. Correct. That was one thing that I did not know, and that was, we did uncover that was that Tom Cruise in the late '80s was attached to this movie um, for director John McTiernan. They were working off a script by Terry Ruscio and Ted Elliott, and uh, Julia Roberts was going to star as the Princess of Mars. That didn't happen because the visual effects weren't there at the time. And then when Stanton started this version, Tom Cruise actually lobbied hard for the role. And even during my conversations with Stanton, he played that down a lot. Although I heard from other people that he really went after it. Hmm. Um, So yeah, I wonder if if casting Tom Cruise would have made a difference. Obviously that would have added to the budget exponentially. And there's also- He's even older than Taylor Kitsch. Yeah, by a lot, and they, yeah, and they cast Taylor Kitsch and uh, Lynn Collins because it was supposed to be a series of movies, and they wanted these right. actors to grow with the films. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the marketing was really off. Nobody, nobody kind of got across the fact that this was the first story that inspired Dune. It inspired Star Wars. It inspired Avatar. But by the time you saw it in 2012, you thought it was just old hat, and that all of that stuff you know, was before John Carter. So there was a real problem in communication. And I don't think they really, you know, they really didn't try that hard to get that 
across and I'm not really sure why. It just feels like it was like five degrees off from really working and nothing quite clicked. Right. Like and it's it interesting, right? Like it's that you can be that close to the mark and it's still right. Like that's what I'm talking right. about. That sort of what is that kind of really hard to seize uh, glue or the soul that, that gives a story on film that must see thing or the, 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 I guess the credibility and authenticity somehow, like it's got to speak to audiences and this just somehow didn't. And in the end, as your headline points out, the Disney took a $300 million write down on this movie, right? Yes. And, you know, Stanton is really lovely in the piece and, and talks mm. about Bob Iger and how sort of magnanimous he was. And he called him up and gave him this, you know, I think it was a Winston Churchill quote and, you know, he even said publicly that we all take the blame. For no, the, ma I mean, the man in the arena that. quote. The man in the, the arena quote is a Teddy Roosevelt quote. And Teddy Roosevelt, that's right. Yeah, I love it. I love yeah. that. I, yeah, it's a but good I one. But I think, Sharon, you probably remember when he was saying things publicly about how we all kind of like take responsibility for this. I mean, part of that was that he still wanted Andrew Stanton to make another Finding Dory. And right. he, you know, he right. contributes so heavily still to the, the Pixar machine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's not one of those movies where, like, everything went wrong every step of the way. It wasn't right. a, a Heaven's Gate or a Waterworld. You know, the sets didn't sink into the, you know, water or anything. It was, it was all pretty smooth sailing. And, but and, it was just... and the funny thing is, like, you can have a movie like that because I reported so much on Titanic when Titanic came out. That was, like, everybody was writing what it was going to be a disaster and they, it went over budget and they had a just a, mil a million stories and people walking off the set and leaving Mexico. And the same on Avatar, by the way. Avatar also was like, is it going to suck? Like, what is this going to be? <laughs> Titanic went on to become the highest grossing movie of all time for a long time. And then Avatar, I think, took its place afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's like, it's that, you know, un, uh, you know, really hard to name something, right? And it might just yeah. be like the grit and determination of the director at the end of the day. I don't know, but it, it's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it too is like that, you know, Dick Cook uh, greenlit the movie and then, uh, you know, there was a change in management and the new management really didn't care that much about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they had this this woman who was in charge of marketing, M.T. Uh, Carney. M.T. Carney, that who, was a whole, yeah, yeah. I, I was a, yeah. here for her you remember. brief, explosive yeah. stint. <clears throat> British woman, like, parachuted into Hollywood. Everybody was, like, totally on board to have her fail. Definitely, right. from day one. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> apparently not. she was not that interested in selling John Carter either, so... That I mean, they could have used that to kind of get her out early. I, you know, we talk in the piece about how, you know, she left. I think less than a year into a five-year contract or That's something. Right. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's really and never to be heard or seen, heard from or seen again in Hollywood. Oh, by the way, no, and I could I couldn't find her either. I I wanted to talk yeah. to her. Uh, <laughs> here. Yeah. It's interesting. The... My number Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> the legacy of John Carter, I think, is interesting as well. When we talk about Disney, we talk about it as this massive force now. How many like new IP have they greenlit since John Carter? You know, oh, it's interesting. They found their Marvel track. They found their live action remake track. Everything is IP. Even Tomorrowland, which was a failure, was IP because it was based on you know the Disneyland rides. All roads lead to Disney Plus now, essentially. Um, but what happened to 
I guess the quote unquote original Disney live action film. Well, I mean, I think there's the one two punch of John Carter in 2012 and then Lone Ranger in 2013. I mean, they both have a certain sensibility of being based in kind of pulpy adventure stories. And to me, it really reminds me of the one two punch of Dick Tracy and the Rocketeer in the early 90s, which it was like they had one that went super over budget. They were really worried about the next one and the next one came out over budget too and failed just as spectacularly as the one before it. So I, I love those movies and I think those are a really interesting kind of lane of Disney live action product. But yeah, it's sad that they won't ever, I don't think they'll ever take a big swing like John Carter again. I think Tomorrowland was probably the closest one and that didn't work either. So mm. yeah. Mm. Not for the faint of heart. Yes. No. (laughs) Drew, thank you so much. Uh, And if you want to hear more, please read the full story in which Andrew Stanton also gives us his full pitch for the very first time of the John Carter sequel that was never made. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Thank you guys for having me on. Great read, Drew. Great job. Congrats. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Drew. Bye. So, Sharon, you spoke with Oscar Best Director frontrunner Jane Campion, uh, who directed Netflix's Power of the Dog and now seems poised to win, uh, you know, Best Director. Yeah, she's won everything else. She won Director's Guild. She won um, BAFTAs. Uh, But I I spoke to Jane before she won those, and uh, it was a really intense conversation. I mean, I, I love her movie. The Piano was one of my favorite films. Uh, was it was my actual favorite film for a really long time. If somebody, you know, people sometimes ask you, what's your favorite film? Like, it's usually what I would say. Um, and we talked about why it took her so long to make a movie that, um, to come back to the movies. It had been 12 years since she'd made a feature. And it had been 28 years since she, uh, since the piano. And she talked about the Me Too movement and how that affected her and motivated her. And we also talked about, um, when I first met Jane Campion, which was at the Cannes Film Festival where the piano debuted and ultimately won the Palme d'Or. And then um, it was followed immediately by a, a great tragedy in Jane's life. And I talked to her about that. So have a listen. So, so let's just start there. I mean, how, how, does it, how are you processing this experience of being the first woman to be nominated for best director at the Oscars twice to have so much recognition attached to this film, you know, almost 30 years down the road from, from the piano, which introduced you to the world in a lot of ways. Uh, Well, it feels great, actually. Um, you know, I have spent well, 26 years without winning any major awards or, you know, I, actually we did pretty well with our TV series, but in a small way. Yes, and, you did. Mm-hmm. Um, I love doing that. But um, to come back like this, it, I'm, I don't know, I feel gratitude about it because having had a long time in the industry, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a rare occurrence when a film hits a nerve and, you, you know, you've made something that you believe in yourself and it, actually hits a nerve with audiences and um, people in the industry as well. So, look, I'm really grateful. Has, has it surprised you that people got the film, that it moved people, that it is moving people so much? Yeah, I am surprised and, and thrilled, actually, um, that that has been the case. Um, 
But in some ways, not totally surprised um, because I loved mm -hmm. the Thomas Savage material, the book, you know, the same title so much. And um, it was a hidden gem. I mean, it was a sort of uh, in a backwater, never really getting the attention it deserved. Um, mm -hmm. So I felt like, well, it, it, you know, reading mm -hmm. that book, I went, oh my God, this is a great story. This is like a great story. This is a story told by someone who really has lived in the West and has a very different sense of mythology about it than um, you normally experience from those genres. How did you come to, re to be reading this book? It's an old book. It's from six, like 1967 or something. 1967, right? I know. Well, um, my dad's second wife, Judith, um, is a great book reader. And every now and again, she tosses me a book across the Tasman. I was in Sydney at the time. And um, <laughs> uh, um, she's got great taste as well. And I was just in need of a book because it could have just languished somewhere on a shelf somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. And I read it straight away. Um, I wasn't really looking for material, but it just got under my skin. I kept thinking about the themes in it. And, you know, when you are looking for material to do something like a feature, it's really great if it's got a lot of depth and levels to it that you can um, really explore uh, within the narrative. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it just, it seems, it, it's not an obvious choice, or right? it's not like a new book, it's not a hot book. Yeah, I mean, it's not like a woman's story, particularly. And it's not a woman's um, story. It, well, exactly. No, and I, I mean, but I, <laughs> I kept thinking of those tennis shoes and the paper flowers. <laughs> a lot of those really winning details for me. Um, and I sort of felt the call, you know, mm. and um, started to mm. investigate the rights along with my agent. But well, it wasn't so a woman's how... story, you know, and that was interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. that, that's so interesting because you, it, and it completely flips the script because in 99% of the movies that we, we have in the canon of, of movies, it's yeah. a male gaze on, a, it's a male gaze on a male character or a male gaze on a female character. And this yeah. completely flips the script because it's a female gaze on a very masculine main character, which is... No not not at all what we're used to seeing and not and and we, I want to talk about how you work with Benedict in a minute I mean you know I I asked myself that question like you know what would um Thomas Savage feel about me doing an adaptation of his novel and um directing it would he feel good about it or would he want a, a big beefy ranching guy type of director <laughs> action man and <laughs> thought that we could get along and and you know I thought that I could bridge the gaps by you know going to Montana and doing the research meeting Annie Pru who wrote the afterward and um and, and basically aligning myself I mean I'm also from a theatrical family and a farming family you know I had a horse all my life and um, we had cattle on the on our farm so I did understand something about um animals I wasn't afraid I, I wasn't very afraid, let's say, because I, I was really, I was pretty afraid of all that uh, cattle driving stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I just I happened to see Chloe Zhao the other day, who always amazes me that she chose, you know, the, the prairie. All you know, is so different from so different from her life experience. And I always yes, yes, yes. Doesn't matter how many times I, I've been able to ask her the question or read interviews in which she answers that. It's still always fascinating to me you know when you take on something 
that is really different. But I've seen you talk about how the Me Too movement played somewhere in your thinking. I I think it's emboldened a lot of us um, female artists. You know, I actually feel really emotional gratitude to those women that shared their stories and changed the complete um, cultural environment in which we now make movies. It feels like some kind of Berlin walls come down for us and um, it's no longer acceptable to exclude women. Um, And I think this is a feeling from the men in our community as well as the women that it's just, it's not a way we want to move forward and it's not going to happen. Everybody's looking to um, include uh, women's stories and women as uh, creators and makers as much as they possibly can. And, you know, we're now, you know, no way a charity. It's actually good business to be working with women because they make such good shit. (laughs) Well, how did did this sort of play on your psyche when you saw these stories Mm. coming out? Obviously, Harvey Weinstein was somebody who you knew and worked with. And he's he's not the only person who was accused, but he's a little bit the, the face of the, the you know the monster. <laughs> yeah, there's, 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 there was systemic abuse all through the industry. I think we can right. So yeah. so how, how did you wherever you were? I don't know if you were in New Zealand at the time, yeah. or you know, this yeah. was a. In, in fact, when when we had a, an event to bring together the survivors, because I do quite a lot around women's leadership. Yeah. In 2017, we actually brought over somebody from New Zealand who had been an accuser oh, really? and she brought yeah. her tiny baby. She was like nursing the whole time at oh, our breakfast. God, it was, yeah. it, we brought like 30 survivors together. They met for the first time at, wow. at uh, a breakfast that we put together. It was extremely intense. Mm-hmm. Not, not just survivors of Harvey. Uh, and, and actually a couple of people brought their survivors, uh, brought their stories out as a result of that uh, mm-hmm. event. So I know it touched all corners yeah and I know I I don't know but I can imagine it took an enormous amount of courage for them to 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 do that but you know they have changed the landscape for the rest of us and I'm deeply grateful Um, but so but you're watching this as 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 a somebody who's you were out there writing and making movies as a woman as a in many cases you know very lonely Uh, I don't yeah, it's it's so much better now. It was lonely, and um, you know, like the, the it wasn't lonely while you were doing the work. The work was protective, you know, like because I loved it so much and just get so involved, and I felt like I was good at it. I think what was lonely is it was more when you came to release the work, and almost all the journalists were male, and. Um, you didn't really feel like you were going to get a fair hearing um, in some ways mm-hmm. for what you'd done. Um, that, I mean, I'd, I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't like to whinge about it because I don't know where it really gets you. So I sort of go to gratitude. I'm, I'm damn pleased now things have changed. Um, <laughs> but there were times I think when there were so little women um, represented in the industry and not winning anything much that they started saying, oh, well, we could have the, you know, best women's film. And you go like, no, you know, we don't need a category of our own. We can compete if you just give us the chance, you know. We can do good stuff. Yeah, right. That exactly. is not what's needed, you know. We're good storytellers. We're good good with people. We're good with actors. We, you know, we can do the whole thing. 
and you know in any case i'm not i mean i think maybe other people are more gender divided than i am personally like i i really um like a lot of um male collaborator collaborators also in the industry as much as females mm -hmm. um it's really about their level of openness and sensitivity mm -hmm. um that i respond to you know not if they are actually technically a man or a woman um, of course yeah. of course so yeah. did this did you you saw this as a way of talking about telling a story about masculinity well, like, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'd directly go there. I realized it was a story about masculinity and um, written by a man who was unique in the West, really, for being a gay man brought up on a ranch with a homophobic uncle. Um, and um, he knew the territory. He really understood it. And I think mm -hmm. it's a really uh, subversive uh, look at... Um, I don't know. Of his his take on it was subversive in the sense that he he did a profile or a portrait of Phil Burbank, who's an extremely um, charismatic but also tyrannical and bullying um, man, and unpeeled that onion, you know, beautifully and slowly, and showed us how um, actually vulnerable and afraid he was, you know, and lonely. Um, but also what um, harm he caused others um, yeah, exactly. through the charade mm -hmm. of, um, you know, dominance. Mm -hmm. With that, did you think of, of Benedict Cumberbatch very early for that for that well, role? You, you know, I was looking. Because he doesn't scream about... cowboy to most of us. <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> about great actors. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think mm -hmm. the role needed to be done by somebody who can really enter a character deeply and was in the mood to do it you know because you'd have to be it's not something you could just slip into you required someone who's hungry for that sort of adventure and you know as it turned out benedict was and um i love his work i'm a fan of him as a person an actor and um you know beautifully for me i feel like ben and i have a friendship um and, and it enabled us to sort of work together to get the best out of the role um mm -hmm. and well he let me in you know he likes to be inclusive he likes to discuss things and i and i really appreciate that and i think you know it takes some courage actually to play a role like that a lot of uh, men want to correct yeah. the impression of themselves by playing a hero you know and um yeah. what i do like about this story is that you know, it, it changes the dialogue from, oh, he, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, to just looking at the complexity of human personality, really, and human nature. Yeah. I, I, I do think, you know, that the question of masculinity <clears throat> is this right now for us. I mean, this, this film goes back 100 years, but it, it is it is central to our society right now. I think that we just men are so lost, so clearly lost. And as women, you know, we we, it, we never intended for this world to develop into a binary women win, men lose uh, kind no. of world. And no, yet, and I, I don't think it is, is it? I mean, I think men are confused just about how to be men in a world where you have to share power, you know? Yes, right. <laughs> 
I, I don't know. I don't think it has to be that, but I think men, many men, unfortunately, do perceive it that way. That that it's binary. That if women get power, I lose power. Oh, really? Well, you know, think, I'm not feeling that. I'm the, the men that I hang around with or meet in on the circuit, other artists. They're super generous towards me. Oh and, yeah, and super encouraging, and um, yeah. I, I don't. I don't mean sort of the sophisticated people that we get to hang around with. I'm okay. saying sort of more generally, um, you yeah. know, that uh, there the, the sort of question of what what's my role? You know, women now can work and take care of themselves. Where do I go? What's what's my essential? Well, so I you know I know I don't know how what to say. I guess for me it seems like an exciting opportunity to um, to change for men into. To having softer possibilities as well, like to be a child carer as well. I mean, like I had my um, goddaughter uh, come and visit me here in London. She lives here with her husband, um, mm -hmm. um, so Jesse and Tristram, and they've got two kids. And she's the breadwinner at the moment, and he's at home looking after mm -hmm. the kids. And and you could just see it was no issue for him mm -hmm. um, that he was really enjoying the fact that um, you know he's a town planner normally, but he, he couldn't get a job here in London. Um, mm -hmm. so he was, he's, he's the dad, he's a stay at home dad, you know? And yeah, I, no, I, I think that's the world. I was really intrigued to see how it was just no issue. That's great. That, yeah. That's great. And we certainly need, need, need more, more of, that. of them. Yeah. And examples of it too, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I think, so, you know, when you've talk... been around in the world for a little bit, you sort of realize that there's sort of, there's many, um, ways to be, and you know, like dominating and not, you know, or being subjugated, these sorts of things. You just you don't want them, you know. You, it's uh, there's other ways to uh, be together, you know, that are a lot kinder and um, involve kind of getting to know yourself and 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 even you know just wondering. I mean, you know, what's next? Like, you know, in, in twelve years' time, I'll be eighty, you know, and you think like, oh, okay, goodness, goodness. <laughs> Goodness, that's um, old. Okay, um, how do I, well, I, how do you, I make you those years work? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's talk for a second about Kirsten and, and working with her. Um, how how was how did you come to choose her, her? And she's of course nominated for her performance, and I'm sure it's mm. great to see that recognized. Not only Benedict's work, which is yeah, <laughs> I'm really happy about year in a way. All four of them. Um, being nominated mm. and it's it's really great the academy kind of amazing yeah acknowledge them all um well kirsten is somebody whose work i've loved ever since um seen her in virgin suicide um mm. Sophia, that beautiful film that i you know really mm -hmm. don't think is um gets enough attention agreed um, agreed so i just think she had the most haunting presence in that film um, and then Melancholia, I mean, God, it was an incredible performance in her um, last Montreal movie. And so I, I, I've always tagged her as an actor that I'm super interested in seeing whatever she does. And I did feel that she would be a really good Rose. Um, you know, initially, um, Lizzie Moss and I were going to work together on it because mm -hmm. we got very close on the series. Mm -hmm. And um, however, we just couldn't make the schedule work. So the next person I thought about was Kirsten and she was interested. Um, and then there was some problems with her schedule and it was really heartbreaking, but they've figured it out. 
Um, they figured it out. Yeah, they figured it out. So that was good. And I just, I just remember one moment on set when she just had to come out and hang some clothes on a washing line and didn't actually make it into the film. But um, I was just thinking, I wonder what she's going to do. And then suddenly she was just out there and doing it. And it was just riveting. And all she was doing was being in that moment, worrying about her son going up the hill to the father's grave and just thought, oh, my God, so that's what it is. It is nothing's happening, but you're totally riveted. You're totally watching this person's and aware of their really strong inner life. And I think, you know, Kirsten has been around the block a few times. She's got her own opinion about everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love how um, out front she is about everything. And she won't, you know, like she's a real woman in the sense that she has wild um transgresses of opinions at times and says whatever is on her mind she doesn't speak politically or politely but she's incredibly sweet with all the crew members you know mm-hmm. Goes and shakes each of their hands and says hello and but she's um and I love her because of the kind of woman she is uh, I'm not really the same as her but I adore her she's very beautiful and womanly and mm. vulnerable um mm-hmm. But actually, in fact, she's also, you know, she's also tough. Mm-hmm. And in the story, I think the the character of Rose was probably the least well uh, written by Thomas Drawn. Savage. Mm-hmm. She was mm-hmm. um, a little underrepresented and I did what I could to um, see things a little more from her point of view or understand her as well as we could because she has, you know, a completely mm-hmm. vital role to play and being the um, object of Phil's bullying once she gets to the house. Um, yeah. But and, she brought it. Her she, breakdown, you know. And her breakdown. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you have a lot of input into that performance, a lot of discussions, or uh, was it a lot, I'm setting the, the scene? And Yeah, I, I feel that she done her homework. You know, she works with a, a, a coach and... Um, she had pretty well explored it. She had all sorts of techniques, which I thought were pretty fascinating. You know, I was learning stuff from her, like substitutions that she likes to use to give things more power, more energy, more. Um, what, what's a substitution? What, what do you mean? What? Well, she might, you know, in her mind, um, say, for example, that um, you know this is not true, but she'd have a secret, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, that would work you know like between her and her son they had the secret that they just thought would be helpful that in fact he might have killed his father and that gives them a sort of closeness that doesn't come out Mm -hmm. in the story and it's not part of the story but you can kind of Mm -hmm. see how um, that creates a kind of sense of secrecy and protectiveness towards each other Mm -hmm. that would really work well and also she was really clever about how to play drunk. Um, you know, she had techniques mm-hmm. that she would do like just spinning and then um, trying to walk. And um, if she wanted to be really nervous with the piano, she'd hold ice in her hands, you know, before mm. she had to put them out on the keys. Um, she had some good tricks. But more than anything, she's just there. You know, she has that capacity and so does Jessie. Uh, Plemons, her husband, in, in spades, of just 
being totally present in the character and it's um, a riveting thing to see you can't take your eyes off them they're, they're telling me i need to wrap so i just wanted to uh, thank telling you the wrap to wrap. <laughs> telling the wrap to wrap how could they i wanted to it's so uh, nice to you meet one, you yeah so nice to meet you there's one thing i wanted to tell you that um yeah just to that's again sort of like closing the loop which is when when you were in con um i was pregnant and you were very very pregnant and you know having my first and i know that tragically you lost that baby and um, we'd all been warned as journalists not to pressure you because you it was a it was a important you know they were worried about your health and I, I did something i've never ever done which is and i don't know if it ever reached you but i wrote you a letter after con uh pleading with you to not give up on either film or being a mother because Aww. you both were so important to the world uh, oh, I felt and that we shouldn't have to choose and I, I as a young mother I wanted to say to you please don't give up on either on either of those things and I don't know if that letter ever reached you and I was very out of character me as a journalist I, I, think it might have, I mean it might have reached me a lot of people did write to me it was really hard to respond I was actually broken um, I'm sure I'm so and, sorry that happened um I would say it was a, you know, in a whole life, it was a amazing experience to be so broken, so sad. Mm. However, I didn't go up. I had a baby girl. I know <laughs> and, you did. I know. Yeah, I'm so glad. And she's no baby anymore. She's 27. She's making a film <laughs> and she's Wonderful. acting as well. I mean, I just, you know, I mean, of course I'll never, forget Jasper and be so grateful to him. But, you know, you also feel like, okay, women take hits, you know, some women even die from childbirth and, um, you know, two in every hundred babies don't survive it. And I was, you know, I had that, you know, two in a hundred baby. So, you know, or one in 10,000, I remember how many of the do die from the condition that my little baby had, but, you know, you just, it brings you right into the heart of suffering. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of feel like it was um, spiritual and something really I'm grateful for. I, I felt it so deeply and for such a long time. And I just uh, wanted thank to share you. that with you. And I'm so sorry for that loss of yeah. yours. And thank you so much for the, the beautiful work you've given, you've given us. So we're gonna cry and, and aren't we? i'm gonna cry it's okay you um, can cry about a lot of things and this is a good thing to cry about yeah thank you jane for everything thank, thank you, you for, for the, your time and congratulations and good luck And that is it for the latest episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. And remember to please follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, interview us, and let us know what you think of the pod. See you next time.